0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership Webcast Conversations at Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me/voices.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Voices in Leadership, a series focusing on science and leadership. I am Betty Johnson and I have the privilege to direct this program and introduce today's guest. Dr. Margaret Hamburg is an internationally recognized leader in public health and medicine, where she is known for advancing regulatory science and modernizing regulatory pathways. From 2009 to 2015, she served as the 21st Commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. She was also the founding vice president and senior scientist at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, a foundation dedicated to reducing nuclear, chemical, and biological threats. Her other positions have included Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, Health Commissioner for New York City, and Assistant Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. As Foreign Secretary for the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. Hamburg is the Senior Advisor on International Matters and liaisons with other academies of medicine around the world. She is President-Elect of the American Association for the Advancement of Science as well as an elected member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the National Academy of Medicine. She also serves in various advisory roles, including the Harvard University Global Advisory Council and the Scientific Advisory Committee for the Gates Foundation. A graduate of both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, Dr. Hamburg is the recipient of many awards and honorary degrees, too many to mention in this setting. Although she has been on Forbes magazine's list of 100 most powerful women in the world, her real joy and honor comes in being one of the 20 most powerful moms. Hopefully she can (laughs) explain a little bit about that to us today. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Michelle Williams, dean of the faculty, please join me as we welcome Dr. Margaret Hamburg to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you.
0: Dr. Hamburg, thank you and welcome to our school. And and thank you for joining us here for this conversation this afternoon. We are really delighted to have you. um, And I also want to extend a warm welcome to our audience that's online. So I have the privilege of starting this conversation with you this afternoon and uh, wanted to start with an easy question. (laughs) you served six years as on, in one of the toughest jobs, admittedly, in government as the commissioner for the Food and Drug Administration, from 2009 to 2015. And we're all curious: um, what in that in your tenure as commissioner of the FDA did you see as the greatest challenge of uh, in that role? and if you could tell us a little bit the story of how you addressed you know that challenge or those challenges
2: well first let me say it was really a privilege to be the commissioner of the food and drug administration it was a very hard job i don't disagree mm-hmm. that it's one of the hardest jobs in government and perhaps one of the most underappreciated in terms of just how important and unique the fda is i mean mm-hmm. i really this era of government bashing would like to say that I think FDA is a great example of government in action Mm. to serve the people. Most people don't even understand that the FDA actually oversees products that represent about close to 25 cents of every dollar that consumers spend on products and things that really matter to people, You know, from the time you get up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, the food you eat, the uh, drugs you take, the devices you may need, um, you know, just such an array of, of of products and important information for consumers to know. Um, it's a hard job because, number one, you are overseeing such a broad range mm-hmm. of of products and activities because you have such a diverse and committed set of stakeholders and constituents. Um, for the work you do and the decisions that you make. Um, it's also at the sometimes treacherous interface of public health science, medicine, and politics. Um, and it's a job where the decisions you know, make a huge and enduring difference in the lives of individuals and families, you know, like mm-hmm. about a, a drug that, that may you know treat a serious, um, if not potentially lethal, disease. Or you know the pocketbooks of stakeholders um, and shareholders uh, in companies. So everything you do is scrutinized, um, and there is a you know it's you're operating absolutely in a fishbowl. Um, for me, you know what enabled me to do the job was the sense of commitment to the mission. FDA is a science-driven regulatory agency with a public health mission to promote and protect. The health of the American people, and um, you know, I think what I, you know, feel the most proud about, and what really was the the driving goal that I had was to really restore trust and confidence mm-hmm. in the FDA and its important work through lots of different. Um, programs and activities in, in lots of different ways. But when I came on board, FDA was, I would have to say, sort of embattled. There'd been a series of um, crises, some drug safety issues, some foodborne outbreaks. Um, Congress was, you know, hauling up the leadership of the FDA to hearings. The media was mm-hmm. was scrutinizing and pointing fingers. The political environment was very charged. And the FDA had sort of circled the wagons. And people didn't want to to stick their necks out for fear that they might get their heads chopped off. And I felt it was really important, number one, to um, open up the agency to explain what we did, how we did it, and why. You know, if people can't see what you're doing, don't understand what you're all about, then they are more likely to revert to suspicion. Um, but if they understand, even if they don't like the decisions you make, you know, I think that it, it does build trust and confidence. Um, in addition, I felt it was crucially important to make sure that that the work of the FDA was driven by the best possible science. And that isn't to say that you always have all the data that you need <coughs> to make hard, complex decisions. But if you don't use science right. as your North Star, so to speak, you can get buffeted about by all of the competing priorities, the different stakeholders, the, the, the politics. Um, and so that was another critical issue, was to, to drive forward on the basis of science, to build stronger science within the walls of FDA, and yeah. importantly, to yeah. engage with academia and industry scientists um, to, to continue. Uh, to build and extend a strong scientific foundation for FDA's work.
0: I'm so glad that you you are shining the light on how important it is to improve the public's perception on the importance of science and decision making. Um, I think we're at a, a place in history where many of us in academia and in science are wondering if we are doing well enough in communicating the relevance, the importance of science and evidence to decision making. Mm-hmm. Could you share with us a concrete example of how you were able to break through uh, to a general audience this relevance, the importance of evidence yeah. in your decision making capacity as commissioner? Can
2: I go back to when I was commissioner of
0: sure. the Health
2: Department <laughs> in New York? There, there are some examples from FDA also, but. You know, for me, it was a profound experience when I was in New York City's Department of Health um, to see a hard decision being made on the basis of science. And because it was early in my career, it, it sort of, I think, helped mm-hmm. me as I moved forward. And this was not a decision that I made. It was actually a decision that Mayor Dinkins made. Um, and he was the mayor that um, hired me in as uh, commissioner. And he actually, I probably shouldn't tell this story in this setting, but he had to go to city council and change the charter because I didn't have a master's in public health. Um, uh, and instead, they put in language about a master's in public health or equivalent experience. Um, but um, but this had to do with the issue of needle exchange, which was very controversial at the time. And Mayor Dinkins is the first African-American mayor. and. Um, someone committed uh, to the African-American community in New York City and beyond, had very strong views about needle exchange and was very, very concerned that needle exchange actually enabled continuing um, intravenous drug abuse that had been so devastating Mm. to so many. Mm. And he had campaigned against needle exchange, and when he became mayor, he actually dismantled the one very small needle exchange program that was operating in the city. Um, but there was an article in the New York Times uh, on the front page about a study, dare I say it, from Yale University, <laughs> um, that, was, that was heralded as the first quantitative study that showed that needle exchange actually reduced HIV infection. Um, and he called me up and he said, I want you to look at this study. Because if it's really true, we ne- may need to rethink, and I was actually acting commissioner at the time. I wasn't officially commissioner, and I thought, "Wow, you know, this is surprising because he was so adamant on this issue." So I put together a little task force that included uh, a number of people, uh, some of whom I knew, you know, were um, trusted by the mayor. Um, but, uh, for example, someone who headed the Health and Hospitals Corporation, who'd worked with the mayor for years, um, some academic leaders, and others. And we looked not just at that study, but at the whole literature around needle exchange. And and I went back to the mayor and I said, you know, the evidence is compelling, and you know, needle exchange can and should be done to reduce HIV transmission, but in a context that that's comprehensive, that ensures linkage into other important medical and social services, that gives um, addicts not just the opportunity to have clean needles and protect themselves from. infectious disease, but also to get linked into drug treatment services and and other important services. And um, I'll never forget when when he made the decision to allow needle exchange programs to go forward. At the press conference, he's, he could not say he supported needle exchange. He said he was relaxing his opposition.
0: <laughs> um,
2: but the critical thing was, that he, as a, as a non-science or mm-hmm. medical or mm-hmm. public health professional, said we have to look at the data yeah. to save yeah. lives. And there were a lot of people that were mad at him, mad at me too, mm-hmm. about, about this decision and didn't think it was the right one. But you know, I had enormous admiration mm-hmm. um, that, that he was willing to do that and um, that we were able to provide the scientific data to support yeah. um, an important program, it's a great forward. example.
0: That's a, a great example of how important it is to have the evidence um, and and have that inform uh, tough decision making. I, I wanted to go back and ask um, about your leadership style. That you aim you, in leading the FDA, you took a deliberate um, decision to lead the FDA in having a global influence. And I wondered if you could share with us, um, in the process of doing that, very big, bold leadership decision to take for uh, a very important agency, what leadership style did you take on? Was there a particular leader or mentor in your career that you elected to emulate in Mm -hmm. in taking on Mm -hmm. such a large um, task?
2: Well, that's a really big question. I want to sort of divide it up into two questions. One is how, when you start in a new, important, far-reaching role, do you sort of set your priorities, vision. Yeah. your vision, and and how to take on your leadership role? And it was interesting because a lot of people, some former commissioners and some others, just you know, savvy in Washington ways, said, you know FDA is such a huge, and bureaucratic organization. Most FDA commissioners don't last but about two years um, in modern history. Don't think you know that you're going to be able to really get that much accomplished. Um, so decide on a few discrete things you know that can be done in a relatively short time frame and pursue those. And I came in and I looked at at the FDA and where it was and what needed to be done, and I. Just felt there was no choice but Mm -hmm. to really take on some big tasks and really try to reposition the FDA for the 21st century and beyond. And that meant, you know, really focusing on building out the science, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, It also, and it meant also, you know, really looking at how did FDA work. It focused on rebuilding trust and confidence that we've also touched on. And it also, meant recognizing that FDA operated in a globalized world and that if we were going to fulfill our mission of promoting protecting the health of the American public, we could only do it by finding new ways of working globally. It was a shock to me when I got there to learn that on the drug and device side, of finished drugs used in this country are actually made abroad. 80% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients in those drugs was coming from other countries. Um, Somewhere around 40% of um, medical devices were being made Mm. in other countries. On the food side, the numbers were equally startling. About um, 50% of fruits and nuts were coming from other countries. 85% Eighty-five percent of seafood coming from waters outside of our borders, um, and I might add that you know those are some of the most vulnerable foods to yeah. contamination as well, and um, and it you know there was just no choice. We couldn't pretend that we could use the old approach that mm-hmm. the FDA had really been mainly focused on of screening things as they come across the border. You know. 50 years ago, 75 years ago, more realistically, you know, it might have made sense that you could say, yeah, uh, you know, take that tub of molasses off the ship and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll inspect it and then you know, bring in the full shipment. You know, the only way that we could really make a difference was to reach outside of our borders, collaborate more with both counterpart regulatory authorities and also industry. But also, in some instances, to help build regulatory capacity, mm-hmm. particularly in developing economies where you know a surprisingly large percentage of these products were coming from. Um, because the stronger the ability to provide safe, quality products from the very beginning, the stronger that capacity was, the better off we were. And so we really worked hard to create new collaborative relationships, to share information. In fact, to share workload, mm-hmm. um, because other countries were having the same problems, not to the degree that the US was just because of the nature of, right. of, of our country. But everybody was struggling with how can we protect the health and safety of, of our um, populace When products are coming from all over the world and through these complex supply chains. So, we actually tried to create a whole new mechanism for global governance as well. And progress is being made, it takes time, and the world is only getting more complicated. But, you know, one of the things that I worry about, frankly, in this um, current political environment is that we not let, you know, a strong nationalistic focus cloud our vision about what needs to be done in terms of the fact that you know we live in a globalized economy and you know I don't think that's going to change right,
0: right so america first really is not incompatible with global collaboration right.
2: and then in terms of leadership style you asked about you know i mean i think everybody has to find their own leadership style and yeah. you have to be true to who you are and I was sometimes criticized because people wanted me to pound the table more, mm. but that isn't my style my style is is a much more sort of dare I say gracious leadership style i i I uh, you know like to listen and learn from those around me. I like to try to move towards consensus um, i I know that I don't know everything that is important for the job. So I also, you know, like to ask questions and, um, you know, really, um, I. Someone once described me as being a steel magnolia, <laughs> but you know, you have to have yeah. your own, your your own style, your own voice, and, um, you know, I think f- for whatever reasons my style at that moment, you know, probably was an effective one and, you know, I'm very mission driven. I really, you know, that sense of purpose and commitment and working at the FDA, the employees are amazing, you know, in terms of their dedication, um and integrity and, you know, and I just every day felt proud to work there and proud to be their leader.
0: That's great. I um I have a question here that, um, that is related to the definition of healthy. Mm. So um, the, the um, Food and Drug Administration currently has an open uh, comment period for public suggestions for revisions to the current definition of healthy, both from the broadest sense and also in reference to front of package label, labeling on food products. And I'm wondering, are you at all surprised by this, um, this phenomena? And, and what do you think it means for the FDA and public health as a whole to be reconsidering the definition of healthy in, in 2017?
2: Well, I think, you know, first of all, it, it reflects the fact that the, uh, the public is much more concerned yeah. about issues of health and wellness and what can individuals do. To make smart choices mm-hmm. um, for their health and the health of their families, and the amount of interest in the work that FDA did in the nutrition area um, was was enormous. Um, but it's a it's a hard challenge. It, it's not just the definition of healthy that the FDA has been asked to grapple with, but also natural. Yes. And you know, in some ways, you know, you're getting into the existential when you <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> But it's you know it's I think it's one thing to create a regulatory definition for you know what criteria have to be met for something to have a certain label or promote in a certain way. It's another to actually answer the whole whole question. But it's it's much harder than you would think. And um, you know I think you know it's still up to science. To help us better understand what are the things, if you just look at nutrition, for example, the the science around nutrition is very confusing. Yeah. And there the studies are hard to do um, and the database has to be constantly yeah. renewed. But even, you know, some of the debates around one of one of the surprisingly controversial Um, issues that I dealt with as FDA commissioner was updating the nutrition facts panel that's on um, all processed food and many other um, foods that you purchase. Um, And uh, the issue of whether uh, sugar should just be amount of sugar in the product or whether it should specify added sugar, because as you probably all know, know, many food products have Sugar in them naturally, um, milk, fruits, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but then, often when the product is is made, mm-hmm. there's there's additional sugar or or sweetener added. And we thought it was important for people to understand what amount of added sugar was in the product because that essentially represents empty calories. Um, uh, but it was very controversial. The final recommendation was to, to pull out added sugar that I think is still being debated in many um, uh, quarters. And, and you know there may be modifications. But I think my goal as commissioner, and I think the appropriate role for the FDA is to provide consumers with information that they want and need to make choices. And then people can make the choices that they want about the food that they eat. But it's, it's good to have information.
0: Thank you. I am going to change uh, gears and go back to a comment that we heard at the, the, the beginning of the session about um, you're being voted the 20 most powerful moms. <laughs> and. Um, we're approaching Mother's Day. <laughs> and we have an audience filled with individuals I know from discussions about work life balance. Yeah. And wonder if you could speak to that a little bit and uh, share with us um, how you've managed in these very tough jobs, uh, both as the Commissioner of uh, New York um, Health, but also FDA, how you've managed. Um, Uh, your leadership responsibilities at such broad, open stages, but also manage to have the outstanding career achievement of being the 20 most uh, powerful moms. (laughs) Well, one thing about
2: leadership, I'll just say as an aside, that you learn quickly is that once you leave certain roles, you're no longer on the 100 most powerful women or 20 most powerful moms (laughs) list. So uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have that title anymore I don't think but you know it is hard you know and balancing you know all the different pressures in life um uh is is um you know the hardest task um and I was mentioning earlier that my children are now out of the house but my elderly parents are now living <laughs> Uh, with us in our home uh, so that, y- you know, you sort of never get out from under. <laughs> but um, but I think that, you know, one of the lessons is, you know, we all have to help each other. Mm. And um, the question of leadership styles, you know, I mean, I learned to delegate, mm. um, not only because it enabled me to go to my kids' You know, recitals um, or events or get home at a decent hour, but also because that's how you help new leaders grow and how you recognize people's accomplishments and capabilities. Um, and it's how you manage you know, a really complex workload You know, I think you also have to learn to prioritize. And, you know, one of the things that I always felt was one of my great assets as FDA commissioner was that actually, because of my experience in New York City, I learned to know when something was a real fire and when there was just a lot of smoke. And, you know, I saw a lot of people burn out, just constantly, you know, going crazy over crises that. Weren't truly crises, and in fact, they made it worse. So, you know, learning how to put things in perspective, et cetera. um, You know, learning that sometimes you were going to disappoint somebody, either at work or at home, and trying to have a track record where one disappointment didn't undermine, you know, (laughs) your your credibility. Um, And I think one of the things that I tried hard at FDA to do was to make it okay. To be achieving balance in your life, yeah, right. I was very struck the first week that I was at the FDA, which was you know starting that job was pretty terrifying, I'd have to say. But I was going home, and it was like around seven thirty at night, and um, and I had kids at home then, and uh, I encountered a couple people in the hall, and I said, well, I guess I'm the one that's going home early, and these were. Two men, I might add, but um, one of them said to me, "Well, you know, you shouldn't tell people that you're going home. You should say you're going to an event," and and I said, "No, I'm going to tell people that I'm going home, and you should go home because you have two young kids at home, Mm -hmm. and you know." And I think you know the leader can set a standard also that there's no shame in caring for your family.
0: Was there a leader or a mentor or some network that you count on in coming to this, uh, the, the conclusion that you just shared? Um, you know, how, yeah. What were your touchstones when faced with these balance um, uh, questions uh, yeah. in your career?
2: Well, I was really fortunate in that I had two parents that you know, I loved and admired um, uh, and were incredibly supportive mm-hmm. to me growing up, but also had, you know, remarkable careers. And I learned mm-hmm. a lot about work-life balance, watching them, and also in terms of leadership style, I think, you know, your earlier question as well. So, you know, not everybody is as fortunate as, mm-hmm. as I in that regard. Um, And I would say that one of the things that was a disappointment to me when I was training in in medicine here at this great institution when I was at Harvard Medical School, um, that there weren't a lot of role models. And I didn't see a lot of people um, that I sort of said, I want to be like them. Um, And I think, number one, my sense is that Medical education it actually has been undergoing some changes, and it's it's better now. Um, but it certainly has made me, especially as the arc of my career mm. is moving more um, to you know the end. Um, it's made me committed to really trying to be a mentor and a role model, and to reach out to young people at earlier stages of their career, mm. and you know whatever I can do both to provide some wisdom and insight, but also to help open some doors, because it really does
0: matter. Yeah, it does. I I know that as you're at this stage in your career, you have been considering and are actively searching on a number of boards um, and foundations and continuing your leadership um, um, contributions on a global scale. And I wondered if you could share with our audience what are some of the things that you think about as you take on these initiatives and new responsibilities? Yeah.
2: Well, this is an ongoing challenge. (laughs) Um, You know, when I left the FDA after six years of really hard work, gratifying work, but I was pretty exhausted. I I made a very conscious decision that I didn't want to make another institutional commitment, another Mm -hmm. major leadership role for a period. I wanted to kind of let my experiences um, sink in and consolidate, and want to think about, you know, where I really wanted to spend, you know, the next years of my life and what focus I wanted. And um, and so I. And I was warned, you know, don't commit to things too quickly. But you know, I went from this intense job to, you know, not having a lot of activities. So people asked me to do things, and they sounded interesting, and I said yes. And then before I knew it, my <laughs> dance card was was pretty full. Um, there also seems to be a phenomenon of nature that that all boards and advisory groups meet on the same days, <laughs> and I would like someone to figure out that scientific issue and a solution to it. Yes. But, um, but I'm now finding that I'm much busier than, than I ever wanted to be. Hmm. I have the luxury of working, you know now on a range of, of issues and with a lot of organizations and institutions that I care about. Um, but I'm still struggling with this question of, you know, it's one thing to have what, what I've now learned is called the portfolio life, right. um, where you're doing a lot of different things, and that institutional identity, sense of purpose and mission that comes from, you know, one job that you're living and breathing, you know, 24 hours a day. And I, I do miss that intensity, I'd have to say. I do miss that sense of really making a difference. You know, every morning when I got up and every day when I went to bed, I knew exactly, you know, what I was focused on and yeah. and why yeah. you know here it's more diffuse but you know you can make a difference in a lot of, a lot of ways and I'm still struggling you know you think, at a certain point in your career everything is set but it's it's a continuing process no matter um, how old you are no matter what you've accomplished um, you know you're 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 always living and learning yeah
0: I remember when we were talking earlier you said, um, that you let things unfold. Um, and and that's so compatible, your response, is, yeah. you know, is thinking about having the events unfold. Yeah.
2: You know, and the truth is that I never dreamed that I would pursue the career path that I pursued. I mean, it would probably be quite amusing to go back and look at the letters that I wrote when I was going to medical school. Because I thought I wanted to be an academic physician. I thought I wanted to. Um, do either reproductive endocrinology or neuroendocrinology. I wanted to teach. I wanted to take care of, of patients. And I wanted to do research. Then I started medical school, uh, watched the HIV AIDS epidemic unfold. You know, We were literally taught as first year medical students that the era of infectious diseases was more or less over with the advent of vaccines and drugs. Um, and then you know this strange, inexplicable disease that nobody knew what caused it, nobody mm-hmm. knew what to call it, and we certainly had no treatments for it. And then, you know, by the time I was a medical resident in in New York City, mm-hmm. you know, taking care of so many patients and watching them all follow the inevitable course towards death. Um, You know, really made me think about the intersection of of medicine Mm -hmm. with broader social, legal, ethical issues. Made me think also much more about public health. You know, because I, I, as I mentioned, I didn't have an MPH and I hadn't really been exposed to public health in the way that I think students now are much more in medical school. And I'm really sorry that I wasn't, but I didn't really learn about public health. Until, till later, and it was the AIDS epidemic that brought me into public health and health policy, and and altered my career. Um, you know, inexorably, but I think in ways that have been profoundly rewarding, and hopefully I've been able to make a difference.
0: I think we're all delighted that Mayor Denkins um, did work to change the charter, <laughs> <laughs> um, because although you didn't have the credentials, you're taking on large issues like TB control, health services for women and children. Um, you know, in those early days in your career in New York, it was very much frontline public health work. Right. Right. So. Um, it's, it's, thank you for sharing that story.
2: <laughs> when I became Health Commissioner in New York City, my my um, great aunt Winnie, who was sort of like my grandmother, um, was really upset, though. She said, why can't she just be a regular doctor? <laughs> um, why is she throwing away, you know? Because in her world, being a doctor was the best yeah, thing you yeah. could do. And my father sort of said, well, she is still a, a real doctor. But now she's got 8 million patients.
0: Right. <laughs> Populations <laughs> yeah, at a time. Right. Right, with orientation towards prevention. Right, um, right. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to ask, um, um, I, I'm hearing, seeing that we should be wrapping up. And so I'm going to not ask the question I was planning. Um, <laughs> but we'll ask you a question that I know our students um, in the audience uh, and fellows in the audience are, are, are eager to hear. And I wonder if you would. Um, across your impressive career, you've offered just here some valuable stories of leadership lessons, and I wondered if we could end if you could share with our audience two leadership strategies that you relied on, uh, rely on in the course of your career um, in in leading these large important agencies.
2: Well, I think one is you know a sense of. Partnership and collaboration—you mm-hmm. know—get the people in the room that know the most and the people in the room who have the most at stake, and you know, really listen and learn and try to craft a policy is—you know—one strategy. You can't always do that, and you know, and you certainly aren't going to make everybody happy, whatever you do. Um, an important leadership lesson is that not everybody's going to like you, um, mm-hmm. and that was hard one for me in the very beginning. But um, you know, it just is true. You have, but you have to to know that you're making um, choices based on the best possible information. And I think integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you know. You, you that's just you. You you can't get away from the importance of being trustworthy and and having integrity about who you are, about the work you do, about how you make decisions, and how you lead.
0: Very important. I want to take this opportunity to thank you um, for spending the time with us, um, with our uh, audience here in the studio and our audience online. And if you could um, join me in, in, in thanking uh, Dr. Hamburg for her time and her warm responses to our questions. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.